Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. This is the word of God. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for stories like this about Jesus, that we can learn more about him. We can learn more about you as people try to bring him down a notch, but we clearly see that that is not going to happen. Thank you for these. And I pray, Lord, you would give us strength as we go through this, as we hear this, that we would have strength to answer the hard questions also. In your name I pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, as humans, one of our favorite pastimes is bringing somebody else down a notch. Have you guys ever noticed that? It doesn't matter what it is. If somebody's on a pedestal above us or if somebody's just been kicked in the gut, we like to either kick them again or take them off that pedestal. That's who we are. And we can see this in lots of different ways. I think of Friday night, poor Coach Prime might have had one of the worst games I've ever seen in the second half. And what happens afterwards? People bring him down a farther notch. We see it all day with sports. People bringing people down a notch. Then we look at politics. What do we love to do with a president that we don't like? We love to bring him down a notch. We ask him hard questions. We may make fun of how old he is. We may make fun of a megalomaniac. We do whatever it takes to bring this person down a notch. And how do we do that typically? Typically it's by us showing that we are so much smarter than that person that they can't be in the same room as us. We just know so much better. We're gonna see that today. We have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. They are some smart people and they think they are smarter than the Savior, smarter than God. They are going to ask him some hard questions and they're going to bring him down a notch because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, little do they know, he is God. Hard questions, if you look at your outline, I have a question mark after that because there are no hard questions for God. we got to remember that. When you ask God a hard question, you're the only one that's going to look like a fool because he's going to answer it in a way that we can't expect. Now, one of my favorite pictures of the Messiah is this, as we learn through this too the absolute patience Jesus has with these hard questions. When I get asked a hard question or I'm brought down a notch, typically I like to get angry first. That way, regardless if my answer is good or not, they see me angry and they're not going to ask another one. Right? They just run away. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, he answers this with calm, patience, relaxed. And he gives them an answer that they can't refute. 
Now, if we look at the last couple weeks, Jesus has been challenged multiple times already. He comes into the temple, and what does it look like when he walks into the temple? It looks like a shopping mall. There are booths everywhere. There's animals. It's complete chaos. There's money exchanging hands. There's sacrifices being sold, none of which is part of the law. And what does he do? He clears it out. He clears out the temple, makes it a normal temple again, and then he sits down to teach. And people are, over time, coming and asking him these questions. We see his authority question. We see last week they ask him, hey, who do I give taxes to? What am I supposed to do with this? And over and over and over again, Jesus answered properly. We're going to have two more today. One from the Sadducees, one from the Pharisees. Two hard, hard questions that to this point had never been answered before. Not in this way. And then it's going to be Jesus' turn. It's going to be Jesus' turn to ask the questions. Let's start with this first one. Point number one in your outline. It says logical absurdity. Reductio ad absurdium. Yes, I practiced that many times before I got up here. It means reduced to absurdity or a logical absurdity. This is a philosophical term. It means if you can reduce an argument down to where it's so absurd, there's no way it could happen, it's not a valid argument. Think of this, the world is flat. The world is flat. Well, if you reduce it down and say, well, if the world is flat, somebody's gonna fall off of it. Has anybody ever fallen off the world? No, that's absurd. Why would you ever say the world is flat? It makes no sense. Now we have satellites and other things that show us the world's not flat also, but the world can't be flat. What about this one? And we've heard this from our kids before. My friend told me to do it. And we respond, well, if they told you to jump off a cliff, would you do that too? Why do we ask that question? It's absolutely absurd. There's no way they would say yes, unless they're trying to test your patience. It's just absurd. You can't do that. We actually do this in theology today as well. I walk up and I say, hey, free will or God's sovereignty? Which one takes precedence? And you sit there and go, oh, I don't know how to answer this question. That's actually a really hard one. Because there is no right answer. There's a tension there. They both take precedence. They're both 100%. But I can't explain it to you in a way you're going to be happy with. Or how about this one? Why do bad things happen to good people? There's been multiple books written about this. But these questions in and of themselves are absurd. Because there's no real answer to any of them. This first question we're going to see is exactly what the Sadducees are trying to do to Jesus. They're doing the exact same thing. They want to ask him the most absurd question to make him look stupid, even though the question in and of itself is absurd. The same day the Sadducees came to him, was verse 23, who say, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. So we're still on the same day. The last couple weeks of teaching through Matthew, we've been on the same day. We're on Wednesday of Passion Week. All right, so we are two days removed. Sunday was Palm Sunday where he came in conquering. And we're two days removed from Friday night when he's going to be crucified. All right, so that's exactly where we sit right now. We're dead center of the Passion Week. He is sitting in the temple and he is teaching the people. The Pharisees just came up and gave them his best shot. Right? They came up and they said, ha ha, who do I pay taxes to, right? 
And we saw that last week. Now it's the Sadducees' turn to ask a really hard question. And they're the smart guys. We're going to see. They've got a hard question. A little absurd, but pretty hard. But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about these parties. Now, the only thing I really knew about Sadducees before studying this was, if you guys have ever heard that, I don't want to be, I just want to be a sheep. Have you guys heard that song? Where I don't want to be a Sadducee. And that's what I always think of with Sadducees. They're sad people. I don't know what they really are. So I wanted to make sure you guys knew who the Sadducees were. So there were four religious parties in Jewish culture. The Essenes, the Zealots, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Let's look at these each quickly. The Essenes, so they're the ones that did the Dead Sea Scroll. They are scribes. They are actually outcasts in society, which is interesting, because they want to preserve history. That's their goal. So they go, a lot of them live in caves, a lot of them live off the beaten path. They write down history and they store it so generations to come, to come can have a written history. That's the Essenes. They think history, above all, is most important. All right, so that's the Essenes. Second, the Zealots. We had a disciple, Simon the Zealot, who was a zealot. What are the Zealots? Well, they're our polit- political activists. They're actually terrorists. They hate Rome. They want nothing to do with Rome. All they want to do is throw off these conquerors and they want to take back what's rightfully theirs. Get rid of the Romans. Give us back Israel. We need to be in charge. And how do they do it? They do it through killing people. That's exactly what they do. Many times you'd hear it said that if a zealot hadn't killed one, he's not truly a zealot yet. They kill the Romans. That's how they get rid of them. So that's our second party. So scribes, the Essenes, the Zealots, who are political activists. Then we have the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are our religious leaders to a point. So they run the synagogues. They run the local assemblies, for lack of a better term. And they are, let's think of it, the priesthood per se, like you would have in a Catholic church or Presbyterian church. They are full-time workers who work in the churches, right? And they teach people day to day the laws of the Lord, all right? So religious leaders. Now, they're interesting because they're liberal theologians. Now, why do I say that? Why are they liberal theologians? Well, they know God's word. They believe the entire Old Testament, but they've added hundreds of laws onto it so they can get around these laws. You remember Jesus before said, hey, why do you give this to the Lord so you don't have to give it to your parents, right? This is a way for you to get around the law. Well, that's the type of laws they had. You can't do this, but you can do this to get around this. So they're pretty liberal in their theology. They also, uh, and many times, uh, were lower places than the Sadducees we're going to talk about. So When you look at the Sanhedrin, we look at when Jesus goes before them, the Pharisees, there's a lot of them, but they never truly hold the most prominent places. There are a couple high priests that were Pharisees, but just a couple. For the most part, the Pharisees are, let's call them the working class of priests. Then we have our last party, the Sadducees. This is the aristocracy of Israel. These are the rulers of absolutely everything. They typically are the high priest. 
They typically have all of the governors. They are typically tax collectors. They do everything they can to keep charge. Probably their most prominent role is that they ran the exchange in the temple. They were the money changers in the temple. That was their enterprise that went under when Jesus came in. They got all their money or a lot of their money through that, through selling these sacrifices in the temple. They're also a very short party. They came about about in 160 BC, and when the temple falls in 70, they disappear because all their funding goes away. So they're a very short-lived party compared to these others. They're also hyper-fundamentalists. They believe God's word exactly as it says, no more, no less, literal to the core, exactly what it says. But there's a small tweak in this. They only believe in the Pentateuch. The rest of the Old Testament is purely, what should I say, commentary on the Pentateuch, right? So the Pentateuch, the first five books, are the only true books of God. Everything else doesn't count. Hence why we get into this conversation here with resurrection. In the law, can you prove resurrection? It's pretty hard. We're going to see it's actually easier than we think in a minute. But up to this point, no, you can't prove there's resurrection necessarily in the law. And when I throw out Daniel... When I throw out Hosea, when I throw out Psalms, it's real simple to say there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees, they're the ruling party. Most of the high priests came from here. Most of the governors came from here. They only believe in the Pentateuch, and they also believe there's no resurrection. There is no resurrection. And then last but not least, they love Rome, because Rome helps them keep their power. Right? The Romans love them. They love the Romans. So anything that would mess up the delicate balance between the Romans and the Jews, the Sadducees hated. They wanted to get rid of it. So they were the ones that would take the zealots and throw them in jail. They would hang the zealots. They would execute the zealots because don't mess up this great time we have with Rome. Don't get rid of my position. I'm in a good position. And you know what? They did very good very good at staying in power because they were in power for a long time with the Romans. All right, so that's the Sadducees, the aristocracy. So now we know the players, and as we said before, the Pharisees took their shot at Jesus. Now it's time for the Sadducees to start their logical absurdity. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Talk about a crazy question. Now this was their go-to question. If you read some secular history, we see that the Pharisees had to try to answer this over and over again. When there was a dispute between the Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees would just pull out this question. How do you answer it? And the Pharisees actually never really answered it in a good way, and they would always win. I can just imagine them now, right? They're up there asking this question to Jesus, and what do they do at the end? They drop the mic, and they walk away and say, I win. You can't possibly answer this. Well, let's look at it for a second. Let's dig into this question. Levirate marriage. 
So this was given to us in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to read this quickly, starting in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, and that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and tell the elders. And I'm going to stop there. You can go on and see what, what happens if she, he doesn't want to take her. But basically, it's this. This is given so that Israel's name and the name of those people in Israel don't go away. If I have a brother who dies in war, for instance, right, he did something good for his country, but yet his name would disappear, we can't have that happen. So... You would go marry the brother's wife to keep his name going. All right? This was very accepted. Now, we even see this in the line of Jesus. Do you guys remember Ruth and Boaz? Right? Ruth, her husband died, had no heir. Ahimelech was his father, and Ahimelech is in the line of Jesus. If there's no heir, how did Jesus come about? Well, Boaz redeemed Ruth and had a child in the father's name so that the line of Jesus would go. So this is an accepted practice, right? So this is an accepted practice. They all would know, and they would all know what it means. So they ask him, there's seven brothers. First one marries the wife. He dies. Second one marries the wife. Third one marries the wife. Fourth one marries the wife. Fifth one marries the wife. Sixth one marries the wife. The seventh one, this poor woman. Can you believe this? And at the same time, that seventh brother, I'd be running away. If the other six had already died, what's going to happen to me? This is not good luck. Both of them are in a poor situation. They say, hey, in the resurrection that you guys think happens, whose wife is she going to be? They all married her. They all consummated marriage her. That's why they said they all had her. They all consummated. Whose wife is she? Answer it. I dare you. Now, one thing that's important for us to know is that at this time, resurrection was thought of that you would just come back exactly as you are today, right? Same position, I would look the same, I would act the same, I would be the same person, nothing would change. It's kind of like your human body got fixed or something and I'm living again, all right? So that's a little wrong as well, but that's the expectation here. Now, let's, let's look at Jesus' answer. But Jesus answered, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, it's interesting. I'm sure the Pharisees, every time they asked this question, said, just a second. Let me get my thoughts together. Let me think about what I'm going to say here very carefully. But does Jesus pause? Does Jesus ask for a break? Does he say, hey, I need to get some water and discuss this for a second? No, he answers back instantly. You're wrong. You don't know anything. You don't know anything that you're talking about. He doesn't back off. He doesn't waver. He says, you are wrong. In fact, he uses the word planeo, right? Where we get our word planet from. So planet means wandering body. Planeo in this, in this stance here basically means that you are so out of this earth, you, you're not even on the same planet as us. You're not just wrong. You are completely astray. You have no idea what's going on with reality. Talk about a start to a good answer. You are out of this world. 
you know neither the scriptures nor God. Now he goes directly against what they would think is their strong suit, which is the scriptures. You don't even know the scriptures. You think you're so good at this, you know nothing. And on top of that, you don't know the God that you worship. You know nothing. And then he goes right into scripture. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, of course, Jesus gives the most perfect response we could possibly understand. And he gives insight as he gives it. Isn't this amazing? He's given this hard question that almost nobody can answer. Not only does he answer it perfectly, but he teaches us something in answering it too that we can take away. I love it. So let's look at this. First, he addresses marriage. Now, some of you are saying, oh, good, we're not married in the afterlife. And some of you are saying, oh, man, I love my marriage so much, I don't want to give it up. But he says that marriage is like this. In heaven, you're going to be like the angels. Now, the angels are not given in marriage. Why? Because they don't need to procreate. There was a set amount of angels. God created a certain number, and that certain number is all there's going to be. No need for more, no need for less, exactly the right number, right? And when we get to heaven, we'll no longer be procreating. So there's no need for us to be married, right? Marriage is how we procreate, how God has given it to us. So there's no need to procreate, so we don't need marriage anymore. Second, second, he's saying, you're not going to be like you are today. Are you limiting God and saying that the only way you can come back is the exact same way you left? Because that's not right. God is bigger than that. Don't you think God has thought this through just a little bit of what it's going to look like in the next life? You're going to look different. You won't need that relationship. Now, many of us get married because, as Paul said, we are weak. We are weak and we need a spouse, right? If we were strong, we could be single, but we're weak and we need a spouse because we want that love in our life. We want that love of our partner, and it's a very special love. Now, when we get to heaven, we will no longer need that love. Why? You will have a perfect relationship with God. And in that perfect relationship, you will have a perfect relationship with everyone around you as well. You won't need that. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, one drop of dew of the love of God in your life in this perfect manner is better than the most explosive erotic love you'll have with your spouse. So think of it this way. We will have the most perfect love ever in our lives, so there's no need for anything else. There's no need for others to be a wife to be in that position or a husband to be in that position, we will have the perfect relationship with God. We will have perfect oneness with him. And because of that, we will have it with those around us. So we don't need marriage. All right, so that's the first response. Hey, we don't need marriage. It's not gonna look like the way you think it is. We're not coming back exactly the way we are. We're gonna look different. Second, he addresses the resurrection. And this is from Exodus 3, 6. God is talking to Moses. He says, I am, right? And we know this. I am becomes the name of God that he tells the Israelites, who are you from? I am. 
I'm from the great I am. Uh, this is the name he gives, but he goes on there and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Is there a was in there? Because I didn't see it. He says, I am. Now, the only way he could be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 500 years after they had died was if they're still alive. Well, how could that be if there's no resurrection? And that's the point he's making. These three men have to still be alive if God can say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So taking a verse that they all knew, guaranteed, he teaches them that I am shows us the resurrection. He shows us the resurrection through these three men. He also teaches us another thing that I find very interesting. These are individuals called out. God doesn't say, I am the God of your fathers or some people group. He calls out individual people. I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. I am Jacob's God. And I can be your God because I have a personal relationship with them. Not only are they alive, but I have a personal relationship with them. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, we went and watched Hamilton a couple months ago. And if you guys have seen Hamilton, the play or the movie, there's a scene about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through where they're in the Senate and they are debating Hamilton versus Jefferson and they got their rap battle going on. And it's funny because at the end of the rap battle, Jefferson drops his mic and says, yeah, I got it, I'm done. And then Hamilton comes back and goes hardcore and drops his mic at the bend and everybody stands up and claps. And that's exactly what we have here. The, the Sadducees come up, they drop their mic, they're done. Jesus answers the question, drops his mic. And now there is an ovation because Jesus answered the question perfectly. Perfectly. I love that picture. Now, what can we take away from this? We can take away three things from this. One, Jesus is profound and wise in only a way that God could be profound and wise. This question is an absurdity. There's no good answer. There is no right answer. But yet he gave the perfect answer. Because there is a perfect answer. Two, Jesus affirms scripture. Does Jesus go somewhere else to answer this? No. Could he? Absolutely. He's the son of God. He can answer this any way he wants. But instead of coming up with his own way of answering it, he goes directly back to scripture and answers the question with the perfect scripture. And last, and I think most important for us, Jesus is a firm believer in the resurrection. We have a great hope. Amen? We have a great hope. This isn't the end. This life is not all there is. Can you imagine how sad life would be for the Sadducees if when you're done, you're gone and that's it? That's sad. We have a great hope that someday we will be with the Lord forever in perfect harmony. Oh, it's glorious. All right, let's look at this next one. A matter of opinion. While the Sadducees tried to, while the Sadducees tried to trip him up with this logical absurdity, the Pharisees have now regrouped, and they're going to take their next shot. Okay? Now, one thing I want to say about the Pharisees quickly is that you got to give them a little bit of a pat on the back. When they go after someone, they don't stop. 
even though they look like idiots over and over and over and over again, they still try. They think this guy is bad, and we're going to get rid of him. Now, on some level, you have to appreciate that, that they want to root out what they think is evil from their midst, no matter what it takes. And I hope we're like that, too. But as you're going to see, in this situation, they're barking up the wrong tree. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is verse 34, now 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Now the Sadducees now are silenced. They've been muzzled is the actual word here, right? So they've got something put over their mouth. They're done. They're walking away. We're out. We're not going to see them again until Jesus dies, right? Until he's put to death right before his execution. So they're gone. They're out of the picture. The Pharisees, as I said, step right back up to the plate with a matter of opinion question. Now, when we get asked a matter of opinion question, they're very hard because whatever my matter of opinion is or my opinion is, you may not have the same opinion. So one of us can always be wrong. I can always argue that you're wrong. So this is another one of those no-win situations for Jesus. I'm going to ask you a matter of opinion. What's the greatest law? What's the greatest commandment? We have a lawyer come up and ask him this. Now, why would he ask this? Well, just like our code of law today, there are different levels of sin or trespasses against the law, right? So we have things called felonies and we have things called misdemeanors. For a misdemeanor, you typically get a fine. It's not that big a deal. It kind of goes away. Think traffic ticket. Uh, and it's a lot bigger in some cities, a lot smaller in other cities, but it's, it's not as big. Felony means that there's probably some jail time coming with this, and this is a big sin. They had what they called light and heavy crimes back then. A heavy crime was something that typically you'd be put to death for, and light crime is everything else, right? So this master of the law, this teacher of the law, comes to Jesus and says, tell me, what's the most important commandment? thinking that he's going to go directly to one of these heavy ones. Probably one of the Ten Commandments. Probably something like murder. Because if he says it's stealing, that's kind of silly. I got him there. But if he says murder, oh, well, then what about God? And what if he says putting gods in front of God? What if, he, what if I come back and say, what about murder? That's a bad one. So they've got him here where they think he's stuck. They want to know which of the 613 laws that they recognize is the absolute most important. Let's look at his answer. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wow. That's all I can say back to that. Wow. Are you kidding me? Not only does he put them in their place, he picks the one passage that they are all guaranteed to know. The Pharisees are trying to trick him into thinking that he can supersede the law of the Old Testament and tell them what's most important, right? He is more important than Moses because he can say which law Moses meant was the most important. That's what they're trying to get him, goad him into. Instead, he turns around and gives them the Shema. The Shema is written on every door. It's carried on their arms. It's on their forehead. 
This one verse of all the verses he could have chosen in the New Testament, or in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, is the most important. Guaranteed every single person, parent, youth, child, knew this verse by heart. And probably all of them had it on their body one way or another. He answers with it perfectly. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. They've been trained with this for their entire lives, and they missed the point. Jesus answered them, you shall love the Lord your God. Do you not understand what the law is? You guys think laws are these little things I have to obey. The law points you and your heart to God to have a relationship with him. You've missed the entire point of all of scripture up to this point. It is not a list of rules that I live by. And if I live by those rules, I get something. The entire point is I can't live by this set of rules. So I need to give everything to the Lord and have a relationship with him above all. He really brings it home in his second point. If you have that relationship with God, if you truly love him with all your heart, heart longing love, with all your soul, with all of your being, and with your intelligence, then you'll know that we need to love our neighbors as ourselves as well. These two go together. When I love the Lord perfectly, guess what? His love is going to pour out of me and I'm going to love everyone around me. The Good Samaritan, we've all heard that story. That's what our neighbor is. Our neighbor is anyone. Anyone we see. Our heart should pour out for them. So he answers them. What's the greatest commandment? Well, it's loving the Lord your God. And the second one is just like it. If you truly love the Lord your God in the right way, then you will love those around you as well. Just like the first question, let's, let's talk about how this applies to us. First, do you truly love God with everything you have? Do we? It's a hard one to answer. First, we have to know Jesus is our Savior if we're going to do that. And if you love them, you really need to know them, so you probably need to get into his word and start reading it and know more about him. Once you know him, do you know the Father who sent him? Do you know who is behind Jesus, who sent him to this earth? And do you love him also? A lot of people love the teaching of Jesus, love the ideas of being a good person, but they don't necessarily love the Father who sent him, who's behind him. Do you love him? And once we love the Father and the Son, do we love everyone around us? Can you honestly say that love pours out of your heart for those around you because of the love of God in your life? That's what we have to have. That's the greatest commandment there is. Love the Lord your God with absolutely everything. With your heart, with your being, and with all of your intelligence, love the Lord your God. When you do that, you'll fulfill the second too. Because you will love your neighbors and it will pour out of you. Jesus does not want rule-abiding robots that follow a list of laws. Jesus wants us to truly have a relationship with God so that we can have his love in our lives. Now let's look at this last text. Now it's Jesus' turn. So the Sadducees took their best shot, failed. Pharisees took their best shot again, failed again. 
Now while they're waiting, while they're regrouping, trying to figure out what to do next, Jesus asks a simple question. Now he's going to be a little different. The idea of the last two questions was to bring someone down. Jesus wants to teach them something, right? This is not Jesus being sarcastic to them, mean to them, taking them down a notch. This is Jesus actually wanting to teach them something, right? His motive's totally different. Let's look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, I've got to get to a mental picture here, and I, I think it's important for us. The temple's not a huge area, right? It, it may be a little bit bigger than this room where they're sitting at in the court outside the temple, all right? Jesus is standing here teaching. You've got this huddled group of Pharisees over here trying to figure out who's going to ask the next really hard question that's not going to help much. We've got the Sadducees back here trying to figure out how do I put my stalls back up so I can keep making money when Jesus leaves, Right? And you've got everybody else trying to do their sacrifices back here. So small area, they're all crammed in. They're all thinking about different things, and there's probably a hush. Right? They've been muzzled. They've been silenced. All these groups that were talking amongst themselves are, are relatively quiet now. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And Jesus stands up and says, tell me about the Christ. Tell me about the Messiah. You guys know so much. Tell me about the Messiah. Whose son is he? And can you imagine all the turn, heads that turn around the courtyard? They all turn and say, hmm, he's going to ask us a question. You watch. We're going to get him now. He got us. It's our turn to get him. And they say, well, David, he's David's son. Now, on the outside looking in, this answer is correct. Right? Do you guys remember Matthew 1? We spent an entire week looking through a genealogy to prove that Jesus is in the line of David. Because if Jesus is not in the line of David, he's not truly the Messiah. So on some level, this answer is correct. He is David's son. But where it's wrong is this. In culture, whoever was the head of your line is what you're supposed to be like. All right? And you always take people back to that great person in your line that that's going to be like. So think Aaron, right? Aaron was the high priest. Everybody in his line can be a high priest, right? When we think of David, what do we think of? We think of conquering king. We think of somebody that's going to come in and put his stamp on the physical world and conquer and so on. We have these family names that you have to live up to. So when he says, whose son is he? and they answer David, they're also answering that we expect the Messiah to look like David. He's going to look just like him. He's going to come in. He's going to conquer. He's going to put everybody below us, and we're going to be in charge. Does this sound new? No, this is not new. The disciples have been thinking this the whole time. I don't know how many times we have the disciples asking this. Can we have this? Can we have that? When are you going to conquer? When is this going to come? The disciples had the same question, right? And they all fall into the same thing, and Jesus is going to teach them differently. But they say he's the son of David. And Jesus has to correct them. He says, yes, you know, he is the son of David. But why does David say this? Why does David call him Lord? 
Why does he say Lord in this passage from Psalms, Psalm 110? And it's because of this. While the Messiah is in David's line, he is greater than David. Something greater than David is here. And they don't get it. They're asking him these questions, trying to trip him up. He's trying to teach them, get guys, as great as David was, and as much as you loved him so much, something way greater than David is here. And you need to recognize it. Why does David call him Lord? Because he is his Lord. He is God. They don't truly understand that the Messiah is God's son, first and foremost. He is in the line of David, but he's God's son. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell them. But he's also trying to tell them that there's work to be done before enemies are made as footstools. If we look back at this, it says there will be time before he makes the enemies as footstools. This does not happen right away. The timing is not what we think or what the Pharisees would think should be in this. They think that when Messiah comes, it's instantly, we are going to get what we want and we're going to be in charge. But instead, Jesus comes and he must drink a cup only he can drink so we can be saved. And then someday, enemies will be made footstools at his feet and he will return as a physical king to rule over this. Now, think of this in literally two days or two days ago, I should say, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem as a concrete hero. Remember that? Everybody ripped the limbs off the trees, threw them down so he wouldn't have to touch the dirt because he's too special. He is a conquering king. And in two days from now, he'll be dying on a cross like a common criminal. Two days from now. Common criminal. Worst possible death You can ask for most embarrassing, shameful death. And what does Jesus say to these these men that is questioning him? He says, you know what? Someday they will be made footstools, but I have work to do right now. And the work doesn't look the way that you think it's going to be. For our disciples, this should have been a very encouraging sight that the Messiah is going to come and look different. But I'm sure they missed the message here too, just like these men did. But let's make sure we don't. Jesus came for one reason and one reason alone, to drink the cup that we couldn't drink so that we would not have to go to hell. He paid the price only he could pay for our sin for eternity so that if we believe in him, we can have everlasting life. We can have that resurrection with God. We can have that perfect love that he talked about before. But in order to do that, he had to be lowly. He had to do the worst thing possible. He's not going to look like the Messiah that they think is coming and the judge they think is coming. Now, what can we take away from this? This one thing. At the end of the day, Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. It may not look that way. Sometimes in our lives, it may not look that way. We may not feel like Jesus wins. Do you know what? Your entire life on this earth you may not get that feeling that Jesus wins. But do you know what? Jesus does win. He wins. And someday, when we're resurrected, or maybe some of us will see it, 
Jesus will come back and physically win on this earth. Not only that, he will perfect us in resurrection so that we can have perfect love and love him as well. Now let's look at all these questions in its entirety and pull away a couple things real quickly and then I'll let you go. First one, Jesus truly is the son of the God and the Messiah. When you have hard questions that only God can answer and God answers them, listen. Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah. When he answers a question, listen to him. When he answered these Pharisees and Sadducees, listen. When we ask him questions in our prayer, listen to his answer. Don't ask them in a way that we know better, but accept him as the Son of God and the Messiah because he knows better. Two, Jesus is worthy in all things of everything. Not because he can answer the unanswerable question, not because he can silence his critics, but because he truly is. He is worthy in all things. Three, we need to follow his example. We're going to be asked a lot of questions. I'm sure some of you have been asked questions in the past. When we're asked those questions, do you have a good answer? Do you know what you're going to say? Think about that for a minute. I've been asked questions many times where I go, I don't know, that's a hard question. I don't think that's answered in the Bible anywhere. Just to find out that it's answered over and over and over again and I'm the idiot. Do we know our Bible? Do we know how to answer hard questions? Do we know how to go back and study our word? Because we need to be prepared. We're going to have doubters also. People are going to want to ask us why you believe what you believe. Do you have an answer? If you don't, I'm going to encourage you to go get an answer. Jesus had an answer. Why can't we have an answer? Study his word, get in it, love it, and know it. Think of Stephen and Paul, right? At the right time, the Holy Spirit brought back into their minds what they needed to stay. Stephen, right before he was stoned, and Paul, throughout his ministry, over and over and over again, used God's word to defend what they believe, and we can do the same. And then the last one is one I just said. Jesus is victorious in all things. Keep this close to your heart. We may not be victorious in many things, but Jesus is victorious in all. Hold on to that. Grab that. Do you know what that means? That means we have nothing to fear in the next life. On top of that, we have nothing to fear in this life. If the most they can do is take this life away so that I get to spend eternity with Jesus, go for it. What does that hurt? Do we know that Jesus is victorious and because of that, do we order our lives appropriately for that? Is he first and foremost in our lives? Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for a section like this where there's very hard questions, Lord, that some seem silly, something opinionated, some are just out there, but yet your son answers them perfectly. Not only does he answer his critics, but he teaches us great truths. Thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, for your word and that we can study it and that you've given us the tools we need to also 
understand these great truths ourselves and tell others. I pray, Lord, that we would get in our words, we would study our words, we would love our word, and we would be able to answer these hard questions as well. And I pray, Lord, that as we set our eyes upon you, you would just renew that glorious hope in our souls, that one day Jesus wins and is victorious over all things, and that we get to be there with you. Thank you for that. In your name I pray. Amen. You're excused.